Good evening. My name is John McCombs. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at City Reformed. It is good to be with you. Tonight we're going to be looking at Psalm 19. Psalm 19. Let me move that up just a little bit. Is that a little bit better? Having a hard time hearing me still? Okay. Psalm 19 tonight. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles if you have them. We're on page 5 in your bulletin. Uh, I will uh, read God's word, and after we read it, we'll say, this is the word. I'll say, this is the word of the Lord, if you could respond with thanks be to God. So hear God's word now. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come now and we come to hear from you. Lord, you speak and you speak in so many ways. Father, but if we are not listening and if our hearts are running elsewhere, Lord, Call us back. Lord, speak to us now. Lord, teach us more about how you speak through creation. Father, about how you speak in your word and teach us how to uh, respond to the God who is there and who is not silent. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I came across an article just the other day uh, about uh, the Hubble telescope. Here's the title of the article. It says, The Hubble just took a brand new photo that will make you feel completely insignificant. I don't know if any of you read this article. It's by a man named Mike uh, Weiner. It's from BGR.com. It's in their science section. The Hubble just took a brand new photo that will make you feel completely insignificant. Here's how the article uh, starts. We, We all might be anxiously awaiting the eventual launch of NASA's James Webb Space Telescope. But the trusty Hubble is still delivering some pretty fantastic views of the heavens. 
The telescope's, telescope's latest snapshot is a real doozy, and it's going to make you feel like you barely even exist. All right, are you excited? Do you want to see the picture? I'm going to pass around my iPad here. Uh, whatever you do, don't give this to my kids. All right, we'll never get it back. Uh, so here is the picture in full screen. I'm going to try and pass it a little quick here, do a little swiping so that it doesn't, uh, doesn't uh, lock out on you. Because I don't even know how to change the settings. <clears throat> so the image that Jeff has right now and is passing around, it's packed with tiny details, he writes. But the size of the objects creating those tiny blips of light are anything but small. What you're seeing is thousands of galaxies, many of which are giving birth to brand new stars. NASA explains the photograph this way. Astronomers using the ultraviolet vision of NASA's Hubble Space Telescope have captured one of the largest panoramic views of the fire and fury of star birth in the distant universe. The field features approximately 15,000 galaxies, about 12,000 of which are forming stars. Hubble's ultraviolet vision opens a new window on the evolving universe, tracking the birth of stars over the last 11 billion years back to the cosmos' busiest star-forming period, which happened about 3 billion years after the Big Bang. We're not going into the Big Bang tonight. We're not talking about timelines. Uh, those are all up for debate, okay? Uh, Mr. Weiner goes on to say 15,000 galaxies. That's incredible. To give you a sense of scale here, consider that our solar system and all the planets, moons, and random loose debris within it is held in place by a single star. Astronomers estimate that the Milky Way, our home galaxy, contains as many as 400 billion stars. Multiply that by 15,000, you have a ballpark idea of how many stars and potential planets and moons we're seeing here, give or take a few trillion, because not all galaxies are created equal. He closes by asking this, what's going on out there? Is it just a mass of endless dead worlds sitting in either frigid cold, extreme heat, or somewhere in between? Is there life out there? Is it intelligent? And if so, does it want to meet us? These are questions that have plagued humanity for a long time, but it's images like this one from Hubble that really make you wonder. Looks like it's made it about halfway around now, so keep passing that along. When it's all done, uh, we can get it back uh, to uh, perhaps cars, but whatever you do, not John or Bethany. <clears throat> Must we draw that conclusion? Must we feel insignificant when we look at an image like this? Must we feel like we barely even exist? What other conclusions might we draw? I think Psalm 19 has much to say about this, how we are to feel in light of the world around us. Uh, psalm 19, it's a wisdom psalm, is concerned with two of the primary ways in which God speaks. He speaks through nature, and He speaks through His Word. Have you ever considered ways in which God speaks. If you'd like to consider some other ways, I'll invite you uh, to grill the preacher afterwards. It's an interesting question and one that we'll look at tonight. This psalm's not just concerned with how God speaks, however, it's also concerned with how we respond to the God who speaks. So let's dive in here together. The first section of Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6, are concerned with what theologians call general revelation. How God speaks to everyone, all mankind. 
The audience is general. Again, it's anyone with sensory ability uh, to, to interact with the creation. And the content is also general. Uh, it's not specific, and we'll hear more on that later. Uh, general revelation is also referred to sometimes as natural revelation because God is speaking through nature. The first way we see God speaks to us is through what He created. Does that sound odd to you? God speaking through the heavens? It might, perhaps, at first glance, but we learn much about people from the things uh, that they create, do we not? None of us knew Emily Dickinson or J.R.R. Tolkien. But we learn a little bit about them from their writings, do we not? None of us knew uh, famous architects like Frank Lloyd Wright or I.M. Pei. Uh, but if you're, if you're familiar with Falling Water or uh, the, the, the Louvre Pyramids, right, you learn a little bit about them from the things they've designed and built. But none of us knew Rembrandt or Picasso. But as I say those names, a piece of work an, art, an artwork, a masterpiece of theirs may come to mind, and you realize you do know something about them from their works. We learn these things about these highly gifted men and women because of the things they've created. And in many ways, it's no different with our God. Matthew Henry, late 17th, uh, early 18th century Welsh commentator, has this to say about the first few verses of Psalm 19. From the things that are seen every day by all the world, the psalmist in these verses leads us to the consideration of the invisible things of God, whose being appears incontestably evident and whose glory shines transcendently bright in the visible heavens, the structure and beauty of them, and the order and influence of the heavenly bodies. They declare the glory of God by showing His handiworks. They plainly speak themselves to be God's handiworks, for they could not exist from eternity. All succession and motion must have had a beginning. They could not make themselves. This is a contradiction. They could not be produced by a casual hit of atoms. This is an absurdity, fit rather to be bantered than reasoned with. Therefore, they must have a creator who can be no other than an eternal mind, infinitely wise, powerful, and good. Thus it appears they are God's works, the works of His fingers, and therefore they declare His glory. From the excellency of the work, we may easily infer the infinite perfection of its great author. From the brightness of the heavens, we may collect that the Creator is light. Their vastness of extent bespeaks His immensity. Their height, his transcendency and sovereignty. Their influence upon this earth, his dominion and providence and universal beneficence. And all declare his almighty power by which they were at first made and continue this day according to the ordinances that were then settled. So what do we learn as we contemplate a picture of 15,000 galaxies around us? Well, first and foremost, we learn... That a being a much, much greater than us created them. A being of extreme creativity and artistry. Of high order. Of unparalleled brilliance. 
beyond what we can comprehend. Who would dare even look at that iPad I just passed around and say it was not created by something that possessed intelligence? How much more so with the world around us? Classical apologists, and, and if Eli's back there, I'm sure our discussion will turn to apologetics afterwards. You coming to grill the preacher tonight, Eli? Perhaps, okay. Uh, if Michael Jackson was here, we would definitely be on apologetics tonight. Classical apologists will take their cue here, developing what are no doubt strong evidences for the existence of God. They've developed cosmological arguments, which we can talk about, moral arguments, teleological arguments, anthropological arguments, all pointing to the existence of a divine higher power. But in David's simpler, more poetic language, in verses 4, 5, and 6, he'll just say, look at the sun. Look at its regularity, how it runs its course each day. How it fulfills its purpose of giving light to our world around it. How nothing is hidden from its being. Nature around us certainly speaks, and it speaks of the God who created it. This is the first way that God speaks to us and what we see in the first six verses of this psalm. So this general revelation we might call the big book. Nature around us, God's big book that surrounds everyone that has ever existed. It's his revelation to us, to us all, and we are to give him praise for it. But to know this God intimately, personally, salvifically, we need more than that. And God has been pleased to give it. We can learn much from the big book, and it's well worth our study, but it doesn't tell us how we can personally know this God of creation. It's only general. It doesn't give us these specifics. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 1, which is of the Holy Scripture, puts it this way. Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet are they not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will, which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that His will unto His church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world, to commit the same wholly unto writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. So verses 1 through 6 speak of how God speaks through nature. Verses 7 through 11, we read of another way God speaks to man, and that is through His Word. As opposed to natural or general revelation, theologians refer to this as special revelation. Its content is very specific about God. It deals with the way of salvation, among other things. Its content is not general, and its audience is also not general. It's specific. That is, not all have access to this, but only those to whom God chooses to reveal himself. But God, in his wisdom, in his mercy, in his grace, has been pleased to reveal himself through the Bible to us this evening, through this little book 
this evening, which the psalmist here will call God's law, his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, his rules. All in verses 7 through 11, just synonyms here of God's word, of the Bible. David tells us that this law is perfect, first of all. He'll go on to say that this law is sure, that it's right, that it's pure, that it's clean, that it's true, that it's altogether righteous, that it endures forever, that it's sweeter than honey. David will also say this law can revive the soul. This law can make one wise. This law can rejoice the heart. This law can enlighten the eyes. And it is to be desired more than riches. This law also serves to warn us, and in keeping it, there is great reward. David is really, I think, pressing the limits of language here. This one who is perfect, who is transcendent, has not only created and spoke to us through his creation, but he has decided to speak to us personally. And David is trying to capture that in words here, just how sweet God's word is to us when he speaks to us personally. Should we be surprised? Should we expect the speech of a creator so magnificent to be anything less than majestic? Again, Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1, again, which deals with the Holy Scriptures, uh, paragraph 5, will put it this way. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies, and the entire perfection thereof, are arguments whereby it does abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. Think about this. 66 books, 40 authors, written over a period of a thousand years, all with one central message, and not a contradiction. The Confession of Faith goes on to say, yet notwithstanding, despite all that, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Did you catch that last part? You can't be convinced that this is God's word because of how beautiful the poetry is. You can't be convinced that this is God's word because it all fits together, because it's cohesive. You can only be convinced this is God's word by the Holy Spirit working in you. But what that means is if you've come to believe this is the Bible, if you have come to believe that this little book is the very word of God, that means the Holy Spirit is working in you. That means God, the creator of all things, not only has spoken to you, through nature. Not only has given you this, but has put his very life-giving spirit inside you. That you might understand it. That it might begin to change your life. That you might believe it more and more with each passing day. 
That means God lives in you. And this is good news. So God speaks to us through creation around us. And He speaks to us through His Word here. And if you believe this is God's Word, then He has put His Spirit in you. And you have that Spirit. So how then are you to respond? What is man's response to be to the God who speaks to us in His creation and through His Word? Well, we see that in verses 12, and four, uh, 12 through 14. In light of God's vast creation around us, we can't help but feel small. I mean, if you looked at that picture, 15,000 galaxies, like it's just mind. You can't even begin to process how big that is. You can't help but feel small in the presence of a God who is so transcendent, so above us, so different than us, we being His creation, He being the Creator. We often try and deny it, as the old saying goes, right? They say you get a little bit too big for your britches. So sometimes we think we're real big, right? We think the world might revolve around us, but we know deep down that that is not true. In light of the perfection we see in God's world around us and in His Word, we can't help but feel imperfect. We can't help but feel broken. We can't help but feel burdened down by sin when we learn of this God who is perfectly and altogether righteous. Sometimes we can't even discern our own errors, as David says in verse 12. Because this God who is so transcendent and above us is also imminent and is near us and knows our very frame. Knit us together in our mother's womb. Knows every thought that we have ever had and ever will have. If you're like David in verse 13 and you find your heart is inclined to presumptuous sins, there is more good news for you. That good news is you can repent and believe in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, there is a God in verse 12 who declares people innocent from their hidden faults. And he does it not because of anything in them, but because of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. There's a God who can and one day will keep your sins from having dominion over you. There's a God who has declared you blameless and is really making you blameless, innocent of transgression. We may be small, yes, but never insignificant. The God of all creation who spoke 15,000 plus galaxies in just that one picture into existence, not only took time to create all that, but he took time to create you. He didn't stop at creating you. He took time to speak to you through the creation, through this word, and he took the time to send Jesus Christ to the cross for your sins. If you profess faith in Christ, then He has sent His Holy Spirit into your heart that you might have life. Christ has entered into our humanity and has come to redeem us. If you've trusted in Christ alone for salvation, then you too, like David, can say that you have a rock and a redeemer. That you have been bought back from the marketplace of sin. That the Creator God who spoke the world into existence, 
who speaks to us through his word, who spoke to us in the person of Jesus Christ, who has given us of his spirit. He is not silent. And you can say today that he is your God. And you can praise his holy name for it. Let's pray.